Hi, I'm Craig. I'm Shannon. And I'm Jim. And this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. Craig, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Hi, I'm Craig Timpany. I was Jim's collaborator on Glitterman and Grove, which was uh, the hiding place for Frog Fractions too. Website's at mostlytigerproof.com. And I'm currently working on a pinball game called Pinball Heresies. How's that coming? Um, looking for more, some more playtesters, uh, actually. Yeah, if, if that's still true in six weeks, maybe I'll get some emails from people who listen to the show. Uh, Shannon, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have, any, or do you have anything to plug? Sure, on both. Uh, I'm Shannon Strucci. I do Strucci movies on YouTube. I do video essays, including video essays about parasocial relationships under the Fake Friends series. I do Scanline with H Bomber Guy. I'm the film correspondent on the podcast Struggle Session, and I am a player and host on the teen superhero body horror actual play podcast Critical Bits. So I do a lot of different stuff depending on what people are into <laughs> and want to check out. Sounds busy. I am. It's too much. I'm also working on a body horror zine, and I just made a video game with my friend for a jam a track director on a convention called Con Carolinas, and we're trying to plan with all of everything that's happening. So right now I'm like, I have a lot going on. I'm also <laughs> starting an olive podcast called Critical Pits that might be out by the time this is out. <laughs> I seriously, I, tw I tweeted about this book about olives, like a serious, like well-researched book, and someone who follows me was like, I know the lady who wrote that. And I was like, can I get her on my olive podcast? So I might have like real guests who know about food with me and like my idiot friends <laughs> talking about olives and that's what i've been working on i gotta say my mind didn't go to olives when i heard you say critical pits <laughs> well well critical bits is our main show so it's just like it's a spin-off uh, culinary podcast uh, so is this, okay so i'm i'm you know really into the idea of taking a terrible joke and just running with it. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be a, um, a single episode that goes in the Critical Bits feed? Or are you really spinning up a full series? It's going to be 8 to 10. And each one is going to be a different olive cultivar. Oh, that's so good. We have a list of cultivars we've gotten. I've been ordering Castle Vetrano olives, which are my favorites, from like all these different places. Because I have a little more money yeah. right now. Because I usually spend money on conventions and whatever. So I'm just spinning it on like olives. Right. And I'm trying to find the... Per They're out of season right now. But I'm trying to like find which ones we should order and eat and talk about. No, it's, I'm taking it seriously. It's like a dumb joke that I'm taking very seriously. Because I don't have anything better to do. And I haven't left the house in like... A month and a half. Right. So I have to find something to do. Very good. Are uh, you guys ready for some topics? Yeah. By all means. Shannon, your first topic here is what are the best attributes for a collaborator to have? The worst outside of maybe the obvious ones. I think I, I've learned over the years that like when I was younger, I put up with stuff from people I collaborated with or worked with that I never should have. Yeah. Just people who are very emotionally volatile or who are manipulative. And I, you would, ex like, I would excuse it with, like, well, they're a really good artist or the stuff we make is really good or sometimes it's fun. And as I've gotten older, it's like, no, I, if I'm not enjoying the process, I will not work with someone. It's not worth it, no matter how, like, accomplished they are or anything like that. And I think that was kind of a hard lesson to learn. Again, outside of people being legitimately, like, abusive or anything, which is obviously terrible. Right. Yeah. I, um, I kind of do feel like the maybe the most important, even more important than like that they're good at what they do. I think it's more important that you get along. Yes, it is. <laughs> People can learn how to be a better artist or learn more techniques. It's, it's harder to teach someone how to be like a nice person. Right. For me, it's really important that they've got the right level of self-confidence. You want somebody who's self-confident enough that they can contribute their own ideas and they don't feel, feel like 
they should shut down because everything they're producing is crap Mm -hmm. and yet not too self-confident that they believe their ideas are superior to everybody else's just by virtue of being theirs. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that as like something you want to fine tune. There's a happy medium. Yeah. There definitely is. If people will just walk all over you versus like doing the the emotional labor sort of of encouraging someone while you're working on a project. Mm -hmm. Right. convincing them that they're good it's like i wouldn't work with you if i thought you were bad can we just like move on with this it's it, it's both of them are, end up being a more work versus someone who uh can compromise well i was trying to think of any because i wrote this i wrote it a while ago uh yeah i just like learned that i like working with nice people who are fun to get along with and sometimes that can be more, a lot more important than stuff that you're kind of taught to value in creative circles, I guess. Yeah. This would be so much more interesting if we disagreed. <laughs> well, it's hard to be like, I-, I love it when someone's an asshole or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. I, well, I think there's, a, there's an argument maybe to be made that like, if someone's work is good enough that then you should put up with the, the bad fallout from like, and maybe somebody sufficiently good really is hypothetically that that valuable that you would you would put up with you know like the people just die if they walk in the same room with them like an scp i don't know i've i don't think it's worth it from like people that i've known who are like very accomplished or very well known but they're just mean they're not again not abusers that's a different thing but people who are just kind of mean or i don't get along with i don't think it's worth it to me yeah. To to sort of compromise and being around someone I'm embarrassed by or uncomfortable with or who's a jerk for the notoriety. Yeah. Yeah. It's different if someone is just like weird or different <laughs> as a person, but right. you, you understand them and they're still a nice person. That's totally fine. Most of myself and most of my friends are pretty weird, but if someone's a jerk or is just like difficult or gets angry, I can't handle people who who get like really angry or start yelling. I am, I just can't. I lose my respect for someone and can't work with them. There's a um, an idea that, that that goes around in like Silicon Valley circles where um, some programmers are they pr- they're ten times as productive as other programmers, and I think this kind of feeds into this uh, the cult of like the there being a a rock star. You can hire this one guy, and he's like you should only try to hire the rock stars, or if you hire like one incredible programmer you can just put him in a room by himself and he can just handle like half the project on his own and no one else understands his code that's interesting about that 10x thing because over my career i've met some very very good programmers um maybe maybe as much as 3x even yet i never met a 10x programmer but i have met a 10x qa tester <laughs> this wasn't even in games. This was um, we were doing an enterprise system for running freight container ter- terminals, and this guy just was such a workaholic and had such an incredible command of how the whole company worked that he was finding like ten times the amount of bugs as any other tester. He was he was phenomenal, and he saved the entire project. Wow! Yeah, I've I've actually heard that story about. Um about test about another tester as well just someone talking about like yeah i there was this one that was just producing as many bugs as everybody else on the team and like some people just have a mind for it um regarding the 10x thing 10x programmer thing as far as i know it comes from a study that um the, in the result of the study the um the, the 10x programmers weren't 10 times as good as average programmers they were 10 times as good as the worst programmers in the study 
Oh, okay. Which that makes a lot of sense. Like if, if you think of the the worst programmer you know and the best programmer you know, that does seem like about the disparity. But the problem with the worst programmer I've, I've met is, is that they were kind of just making things worse. So that's <laughs> right. That's, well, that, yeah, there's a sign and, difference in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the study was, and, and this is, I would argue, a, a problem with um, the methodology, but uh, the study discarded uh, the, the results of the participants who didn't finish the task at all. Oh, okay. Right, right. So we've got uh, like a baseline level of competence there. Yeah. But yeah, now, now I'm very curious, like, are, are there 10x musicians? And I can think of a few that I would suspect who are. But what does that mean? What are you, what are you quantifying in that instance? Well, yeah. It's, it's a question of productivity that doesn't always matter as much. Yeah, yeah. Well, then music is, is hard to quantify. Um, I've got a, I've got like a 10 X singer. They sing really, really high and then you just reduce it down to real time. (laughs) (laughs) When I think of like the incredible composers I know, most of them are doing work that I could do, but I would just take all month to write the song they wrote. Sure. I can see that on my own case, but uh, part of that's like, I'm, I'm just noodling and it's mostly trial and error for me. Yeah. I presume that you'd want to be comparing, you know, two people that are both very intentional, right? Yeah, maybe. I yeah, it really, it really, maybe. And like, and this is this is probably my perception of programmers as well. Is like, I wouldn't really say that there's a ten x disparity in in programmers that I've met, but there are like programmers who know what they're doing and do things on purpose, and then there are noodlers who don't really understand what's going on. And I think mm. that's the that's the disparity that you mostly see in professional programming life. And that may be the case. Maybe I'm just a noodler musician. You know what we need on this conversation? We need somebody from a band to, to tell us whether you want rock stars in your rock band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, I mean, it, it might just be that they uh, cause uh, so, so much staff turnover, turnover in so many trashed hotel rooms that it's just not worth the uh, trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I've, I've heard some horror stories. Are you guys ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Craig, your topic here, I'm not going to try to pronounce this. So I have a favorite language, uh, and it's called Tok Pisin, and it comes from Papua New Guinea, and it's a pidgin language. Oh, I could have read that. <laughs> well... <laughs> the orthography is real, really straightforward. In fact, everything in Tokpisin is incredibly straightforward. Um, it's kind of actually really remarkable. So basically, the story is that Papua New Guinea has this incredible diversity of languages. But when Europeans uh, show up to trade, um, the locals uh, form a pidgin English, a uh, simplified version of English to, to speak with um, the European folks sailing up from Australia. But it's based on the English that Australian sailors speak. So, you know, kind of profanity is just kind of like built into the core vocabulary of this language, which makes it incredibly delightful to me. (laughs) And I don't want this to be a thing where it's like I ridicule talk person or the people that speak it because living in Papua New Guinea is pretty tough and they've got enough to deal with already. I just really like it. Um, I I really enjoy... uh, all the etymology that, that underpins it. Um, so 
this is going to be one of those lame topics where I'm like, look at this Wikipedia entry. And <laughs> so if you guys can queue up the talk person Wikipedia entry and scroll down to the vocabulary bit. I've been looking at it. It's cool. So we got uh, bagarap, which means to break down. It comes from bugger up. So that's pretty funny. Yep. That's classic Australian English right there. Uh, just ossified into... Tokpisin is a official language of Papua New Guinea, and it's uh, spoken in parliamentary debate. So if you were talking about the breakdown of society and you're having this incredibly grim speech, you would be, uh, yeah, you, you would be talking about something getting bugger upped. That's very good. Uh, for mustaches, we have um, mouse grass, literally mouth grass. <laughs> and I tried, to, I tried a translation of twin beard into Tokpisin, uh-huh. and I got... Uh, Tupelagras belong usket or Tupelagras belong face. So that would be um, two grasp of the face. That's excellent. I have to assume that like people from 400 years ago would listen, would, would perceive like the way we use language, even in a, um, like an academic or a political setting to be the same way. Like we are, we are taking words that would have had very different contexts in their time and using them in a, in a unusual way for them. Yeah. I mean, all this stuff is incredibly normal um, to the 1 million native speakers of Tokpesan. Still looking for one that's as good as bugger up. I like that there are words from Portuguese and German and other languages, even in this like short vocabulary list. Can you guys guess what a wet liver is? Wet liver? Wet liver. These would be your lungs. Ah, <laughs> and how about pinga belong foot? Oh, a, a toe. Yep, got it in one. That's the same in Spanish. A dedos de pie. Oh, okay. How about drip man? Oh, that's the that's the Dustin Hoffman movie Rain Man. A drip man is a homeless person. Oh, like they're out in the rain. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Grim. This almost feels like. Um, and I guess it makes sense, like the, because pigeons basically are this, um, except less formalized. But it sounds like basic English, where they take something like the most common five hundred or thousand words in English, and you just have to express all your ideas with in, with those words, and so you get things like the finger of the foot for toe. Although I think toe is on the list, but there's a um. Well, there's an XKCD comic that's really good where they describe the Saturn V rocket um, and in all its technical details using only basic English. Uh, and I, I can't remember most of it, but the, the name of it is Upgoer 5. <laughs> the, the one kind of challenging thing I've found trying to listen to um, Talk Person um, as it's spoken is that the... The tempo of it is quite fast, I guess, because you've got to throw so many words to, at it to get uh, concepts out of it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, yeah. Oh, here's one. This is, this is very, very simple. Uh, sit means remnant, and that's from the word shit. <laughs> <laughs> I like heavy for problem. Yeah, yeah me that's too. That's a good one. Like kind of the way, like a, a something that's like very concrete and physical being made more abstract. I always like that. Emmy got big pella heavy. He has a big problem. Yeah. 
We should leave like gaps. When I'm editing this podcast, I should leave in gaps for people to chime in, listeners to chime in with their own favorites. Hey, that was a good one. <laughs> Another thing I thought amusing was um, there are a ton of other languages in Papua New Guinea and talk person is called talk person because it's a pidgin language and pidgin is person and talk person. But in one of the native, or at least more native, uh, PNG languages, they refer to talk person as that bird language. Uh-huh. I don't know what kind of metaphor has been lost there, uh, but that's kind of funny to me. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of how um, in, in English, the word meal refers to both like a, th- a thing you eat and also the most common kind of thing you eat. Oh, I never thought about that. Huh. And I I believe it's also the case that in Chinese, the word for meal comes from the word rice. Definitely true in Japanese. I've done yeah, it about Gohan, Mandarin. Right. That's very cool. But yeah, like the idea that the name of your language is just, it refers to the concept of talking. There's a conlang, which is an artificially constructed language uh, called Tokipona, which is inspired by Tokpesen. Um, it's basically, I think, they wanted something that was really, really easy to learn and had that very tight vocabulary. It wasn't a big compost heap like English, but I guess they thought they'd censor uh, all the rude bits out maybe. Um, <laughs> so this is the slightly more um, boulderized uh, approach. Make it the, the less less fun version of, of the, the cool thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's like you, you're making your conlang over there, which is great, but this thing already has a million native speakers. Right. We should just make a sequel to English called English 2. <laughs> With more cusses. <laughs> Nothing but swear. Not less. Every single word, go into the database and mark, check the, the swear word flag. <laughs> I like the idea that the, the version number on English is only up to one. Are <laughs> uh, you guys ready for another topic? Sure. So I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about Temple OS. Um, Temple OS is, oh, I forgot the guy's name now. I should have, I should have done some research before I did this. Craig, do you know the name of the guy who made Temple OS? Uh, Terry Davis. Yes. Terry Davis uh, made this operating system entirely on his own after a revelation from God that said he was supposed to make an operating system. And he just worked on this thing for years and it's super interesting it works only in 640 by 480 because that was the um, the resolution in God instructed him to make it in. And he made a new programming language called Holy C, which is the basis for the, the command line. So, like, if you are at the, the command prompt, you actually type in a, a Holy C instruction and it gets run through the compiler and is executed. And the whole thing is just a super, like, it's super outsider art. Like very, very, very different from traditional modern operating systems and much simpler. Uh, but it also does, because it's one person doing everything and making all these weird decisions, it's got all these really interesting design choices in it that you would just never see in a, a modern operating system designed and implemented by thousands of people. Yeah, I'd really like to um, kind of put into perspective for uh, uh I guess not pro- non-programmers, uh, what, what an achievement this is, because everybody knows how Linus Torvalds made Linux when he was an undergrad, but 
when people talk about that, they're talking about like the very most core layer of an operating system. There's just enough there that it can kind of arbitrate access to the hardware from multiple programs. But all the other programs that sit on top of that layer were pre-existing, and he was able to adopt those. TempleOS is all custom. Everything right up to the graphical user interface is, is all Terry Davis, and it's all strange. It's just this whole complete separate world. Notably, like Linux was made in what, like 1990, 1989, something like that. It was made on hardware that was much simpler and people expected much less of it from an operating system of that time. Um, and so I think a lot of the restrictions that were applied to Temple OS were like, this is truly the common hardware uh, you can expect from a PC nowadays. So like you, you expect it to run VGA and you expect it to uh, have like a keyboard and maybe that's it. All the other stuff is going to be varied from hardware to hardware. And most of the code in, in Windows and in Linux are drivers for all the different sound cards you can have and all the different video cards you can have. Yeah, and also notable for, yeah, like a, like you said, his very, very strange motivations for putting this together because as best I understand, um, this is mainly for divination. Like you have your computer generate some random numbers or pseudo-random numbers and then turn them into words and figure out what God is telling you. I didn't know this. Is this well, well, so why couldn't he have done this in MS-DOS, for example? Well, presumably, uh, it'd, it'd throw off the process uh, if, you, if you're not getting that that true randomness. I'm I'm a little doubtful that uh, anything out of a pseudo random algorithm is true randomness. Yeah, in the same way that you would like, if, like if you were going to write like make a voting machine, uh, you would want to ideally control the entire operating system from the ground up, just so you could know you could trust it. And so it may be that like, if you want to like, well, I'm going to be writing a program that I use to talk to God, that's as, that's at least as important as making a voting machine. So you want to be able to trust the code that mediates that. Yeah. That's, that's my assumption as to, as to why he was so thorough about having absolutely everything on the entire computer being his own code. It makes me want to, you know, make games for this system, operating system. In the same way that I want to like make that music video generator uh, in the, in the vein of like Natalie Lawhead's Zine Generator, like I just had this thought one day where I want to I want to take a make a program that's like intended with with all these weird video effects where people can like use their webcam and make a crazy music video. Which is to say, I'm never going to do this because who has the time? Like I just want to you know I want to check out Holy C. Maybe it's cool. Maybe it's got some good ideas. I hear that it has. It's got some got some fans. Um, I think it's more one of those things where it's kind of like you you take the ideas. Notably, this this person, I believe he was schizophrenic. Mm. Right, yeah, I, I was just reading his Wikipedia page. He was severely mentally ill, right? And said the N word a lot. And oh yeah, incredibly <laughs> like racist. Very, yeah, and had a very very sad uh, life and death. It seems like right. Yeah, yeah. It it makes it hard to fully get into this project as like a, a lighthearted fun romp and to it's, it also makes it hard to like really get behind like yeah i'm a big fan of terry davis because he had such a shitty life and was in many ways a shitty person 
And I'm, I'm, I'm just really impressed that you can be laid so low with schizophrenia and and apparently you're, you're still a pretty competent programmer. Yeah, I wonder how much of that comes in part from from the mental illness. I get the sense that um, like certain kinds of mental illness actually improve your focus in some respects. At, at the very least, like it can make you choose to focus on things that most people wouldn't. And as, as a result, you do interesting work. You have different motivations, right? Yeah. But wouldn't um, being schizophrenic and kind of just having this hyperactive pattern matching, that sounds horrendous for doing tasks like debugging or anything like that. You just look look at a hex dump and start seeing things, right? <laughs> yeah, it may be that like he was only able to program on his good days. Yeah, that's that's a good point. According to this, his favorite video game was Donkey Kong. Yeah, I don't recall seeing much in the way of games on it, though. Yeah, you would think there would he would have like a reimplementation of Minesweeper for when he gets bored. <laughs> There's got to be like a, someone must have ported same game to it or something. I see. A, there's a YouTube video called "Let's Play Temple OS Games." Nice. Oh, I stand corrected. Very cool. Well, that might not be his. That might be some fan games. One of them looks like the old skiing game, the old Windows, like a different version of that. Ski free. So, oh, I don't know what's happening. Some of the, it's, very, it's just a 22 minute video of this guy playing a bunch of different games. This video is definitely going in the show notes. Yeah, there's there's a lot to it. Who's your favorite uh, problematic schizophrenic creator? Ooh, that's so I, I It's so hard because there are people who struggle with mental illness, who say the, the most like vile things and it's like so hard to figure out what they would be responsible for with what they, they've said or done. And that's something I've struggled with. I, yeah. It's hard for me too. I had a very good online friend who was a wonderful artist who had schizophrenia, who had, like a melt, who had repeated meltdowns and our relationship got very strained and he was very paranoid. So for me personally, I just think of this, per- this very like wonderful, sweet person who I knew who would send me stuff that he drew and we talked a whole lot. And then because of his illness, it just completely broke down all, like all of his friendships and stuff. Not to, like, I think it was kind of like a fun prompt and I'm just talking, saying like a, a <laughs> personal sad story, but that's, it's uh, having that personal experience. I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult to like objectively talk about that. He, he had sent me this like copy of Par- Paris, Texas with like a very sweet, like letter he wrote with it and I've never been able to watch it because I've always just been like, a, I think he's still alive. He's still out there as far as I know. But like, because I've, I've struggled with like certain aspects of mental illness, like anxiety or depression, but I have never dealt with being that separated from reality or having my lens that I view reality through so distorted. Not to romanticize it. I think it can lend itself to art in certain ways, but it's also very difficult. I, but yeah, I can't, th- I, I like a lot of weird outsider artists. Or like I've seen like a Henry Darger exhibit at a museum. I wouldn't say I'm a Henry Darger fan, but it was interesting to look at it. Yeah. I do think that in in practical terms and maybe also in moral ones, the best way to look at that sort of illness is the the person that you don't like is kind of just a different person than the person you do physically, like physically in the same body and with the same memories, but a very different lens on the world and a very different reaction to the same stimuli. I don't know if that's necessarily helpful because I mean, you're not going to know 
what state they're going to be in on a given day. So, yeah. But just in terms of like reconciling how you feel about this person. Right, right. I don't think anybody's arguing. Yeah, they're fully responsible for their actions. I mean, but it is—it's also worth saying that Terry A. Davis was like super into the N word. <laughs> just from looking at his <laughs> Wikipedia page, it's like it's on there a lot. But when you Google him, that's like a big part of his like whole thing. It's just, and I think too the 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 like way that culturally we're set up to talk about these things is a very black and white, very like direct way of speaking, which normally would apply to a person who's in control of their own actions and stuff but it's just and it's like the the friend that i had too over time became convinced that i hated him and that i was plotting against him and stuff that was an experience i had of someone with like paranoid delusions and it's like witnessing that in someone that i cared about it it made it obviously again it's not like i've ever dealt with it personally in my own brain i'm not pretending to fully understand it but it's like wow that's really rough so i do have a lot of sympathy for someone and try it is an example where i would try to separate art from the artist without like excusing him talking about like CIA N-word stuff. Yeah, he's got a um, pretty long list of uh, forums he introduced himself into, and everybody was like really excited by this operating system project he was doing. And then it just kind of his posting degenerate degenerates into a lot of randomly generated gibberish um, from the divination stuff, and yeah, race war stuff. And then he gets gets banned and moved moves on to the next forum. He was very online, um, <laughs> so he's he's left quite a trail. It is interesting. I'm surprised I've never heard of this, just from being into like internet stuff and outsider art. But I have no. I, this is. I'm glad y'all brought this up. Yeah, it seems yeah. like something really unique that he made. Very strange thing from a very strange person. It definitely feels like one of those things um, parachute para dropped in from an alternate timeline. Yeah. It's like, this is how it could have gone. Yeah. I, I'm, and I'm so grateful for that stuff. Like just a, a perspective on, I think Craig, you had, um, you had tweeted around the time he died that it was kind of amazing to you that even operating systems could be outsider art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just seems like such a commitment that you wouldn't have, ima- or at least I wouldn't have imagined that you could get there without like an institution or, or at least a, a movement behind you. Yeah. Which raises the question, I mean, like, what else can be can be outsider art? Like, suspension bridges? <laughs> <laughs> Off the top of my head, I don't know of any suspension bridges made by outsiders, but, like, there's a trash peninsula called the Albany Bulb off the coast of Albany in, Cal- in, in the Bay Area, and until a few years ago, it was, like, covered with homeless encampments, I'm not really sure why they decided to to remove all the homeless people, but that's something that happened. And while they were there, like they were, someone had built like a castle out of shopping carts and- That sounds incredible. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a, and I think, I think the, the art is still there. I think it's just the people who were removed. So the people who actually made it and forced to leave it. There was also a library there, like a lending library un- until it burned down. Oh. Are you guys ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so this is, a, this is a write-in. Quill asks, what's your first memory of being exposed to a computer? I'll, I guess I'll go first. My memories, my early memories are kind of non-linear. Like, I don't really know which one came first, but it might be... Um, going into the the Space Coast Science Center 
in in Florida where I lived at the time and uh, playing adventure on one of the terminals there, like the the text adventure that was just called adventure that what they named the genre after. Uh, and it was actually hooked up to a mainframe. It wasn't like running on an 8-bit PC. So I remember um, my dad brought home an Amiga 500 when I was about five. So we set it up and uh, I think I think we like booted up into Workbench, the operating system. And I don't know if this was on day one, but I seem to remember we played uh, Marble Madness, the Amiga port of um, the, the arcade game Marble Madness. Made by um, Cerny, who is actually running PlayStation at Sony at the moment. Oh. Yeah, I was waiting for him to announce a Marvel Madness sequel during the latest press conference. <laughs> <laughs> did, wait, so did he actually do the port to the Amiga as well? I don't recall. I, I think he might have just done the arcade version. Okay. So had you played, um, had you played video games before that? I don't remember. I, I don't think so. That's a good first one. Yeah, the Amiga was pretty cool to experience. It was um, it was a crazy scene. Yeah, yeah. I remember my dad bringing his laptop home from work uh, in like the mid nineties. I think that was the first time I like physically touched a computer or interacted with it because we I, I grew up like we really didn't have a lot of money, and we probably didn't get a home PC until I was like eight or nine. Yeah. I think the first home computer we had was Windows Me. That's like the worst operating system they ever had or whatever. The Millennium uh, Windows. Right. When I was around nine or ten years old. But I remember I like I remember drawing in MS Paint and then being so upset I messed up the drawing and not knowing because I was like eight that there's like an undo button that the concept didn't really occur to me. And you couldn't you couldn't find the eraser. Yeah. Or no, I used the bucket fill wrong and oh, i got no. so upset because it like messed up the whole drawing but if i had known i could just like control z or whatever and yeah. then for a long time i learned i played a whole lot of flash games because we couldn't afford a console and then eventually i got a playstation but yeah i remember uh fairly young although it wasn't early on in computers but it was like i guess early on relative to my life i was in elementary school playing on my dad's work playing a uh, minesweeper or whatever yeah all my computers were hand-me-downs for years as well Oh, I, I had this um, kind of strange experience of, of being the coolest kid with the this incredibly advanced Amiga. Um, but then we just stuck with the Amiga for a really, really long time. And I kind of <laughs> <laughs> kind of went, uh, went, went in the opposite direction. Yeah, you got to experience both ends of the bell curve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Doom and I knew, and it was about 1993. In that moment, I knew the Amiga was completely doomed. And I think uh, Commodore Wii broke <laughs> that very same year. But but this demo scene has since demonstrated that you could still you could have made something like Doom on the Amiga. You could have, and they did. Um, there was an Amiga clone called Bloom, I think. <laughs> Notorious for um, having like a level intro. I think the the sum total of the plot was uh, quote Watch out for angry skinheads. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Gloom. Uh, it wasn't very good, but it, it did have texture mapping. Excellent. That's all you can ask for. <laughs> Are you guys ready for another topic? Sure. Yes. Uh, Craig, your topic here is why faking one's non-existence might not be a great career move. Right. So I should start out with a disclaimer that uh, this is all entirely my own fault. Um, <laughs> this was nobody, nobody's idea but mine. Um, so Glitterman and Grove had come out 
and Frog Fractions 2 was sneakily hidden inside it. Spoilers. And I got a couple of interview requests looking for my side of the story. But rather than give them that, that I said that I was a pseudonym of, of Jim, um, that it was, oh. I, I didn't exist. Uh, That's interesting. And it felt like the right thing to do at the time, because um, at that point there was all this uh, media interest and Frog Fractions 2 was being like exhaustively documented. And it felt like the the whole project where we've been trying to inject mystery into everything, all the mystery was was being obliterated. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if the lingering mystery was like Glitterman Grove, which was just kind of like this the public face and was um, didn't really have any mystery to it. But I thought it would be cool if there was a controversy about where where it actually came from. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you did make the right move for the project. Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like one of those things where if I'd fed it and kind of kept kept the, the interest going and thrown out some clues, it, it could have been cool. But what happened instead is that um, I told the interviewer this. And they just completely accepted it at face value because uh, I'm in New Zealand and like, who's going to check? So it was like mm-hmm. a very plausible hoax that went down a treat. And when we were thinking about maybe stirring up some intrigue, it's like, do I want people to dox me? Do I want to make myself an arg puzzle? No, no, this sounds horrible. <laughs> this is a mistake. That's, that's a good point. I, I backed away from it pretty hard at that point. So I just kind of lingered there. Uh, and I thought, well, I can do a grand debut later. Maybe I've set something up and I can I can go back to the, those same interviewers and go, uh, gotcha, uh, can I get an interview for my next, next game, please? But my next game has been so long and coming, you know, and dispersed with contracting and the like that, I mean, one of the people was Justin McElroy and he doesn't even work in games journalism anymore. <laughs> he's off <laughs> he's off like running a podcast empire uh so mm-hmm. it's like the the opportunity is has come and gone so the net result has been like when i when i send out cvs i in resumes I, I guess i look a, like a bit of a crazy person like maybe taking credit for somebody else's work and and who knows what kind of like um i don't know what kind of following i might have formed otherwise if if there hadn't been this misinformation of mine you know, out there in the world. So that was, that was not a good move. My take on it is that it's impossible to get a following in video games after like 2013. (laughs) (laughs) So it was hopeless either way. Probably true. This is an interesting experiment at least. And fun. It's different. It's yeah. Fun for the whole family. It reminds me of adaptation, like the fake Charlie Kaufman twin. That he wrote, he said, co-wrote the scripts that didn't exist, like <laughs> just sort of playing with reality that way, or with people's perceptions of reality. Even though it did clearly have some element of career repercussions for you, I think it's at least it's something interesting. It's definitely too too late for me to do anything like that. I'm a very documented person. <laughs> I would have to like make a pseudonym, then make that one fake or something. I don't know. You'd have to do a oh, what was the name of? Tony Clifton. You'd have to do a Tony Clifton thing where you like put like cotton in your cheeks and a fake mustache. Yeah, I guess I could have be been, I could have been your Tony Clifton, uh, the the less less acceptable Jim Crawford or Jim Stormdancer. Yeah, 
Yeah. But uh, of course, the entire time I was worried about going too too crazy because uh, what if it comes back on you? So it's like uh, I, I, yeah, it, it's hard to know what I, what kind of shenanigans would have worked there. When you were talking about trying to preserve the mystery of the project, it made me think of, I'm not, I'm not sure this is really a good analogy, but it made me think of Mr. Ed, which for those unfamiliar, it was a TV show from the 50s, maybe 60s, starring a talking horse. Mm-hmm. And the way they did this was um, the horse was trained to, it was, he was given a signal from off screen. I think they touched its hoof or something and it would flap its lips and then they would dub in dialogue over the the flapping. I think it was the actor who, when asked in interviews how they did the effect, his thought process was like, I want to preserve the mystery for the children of how they do this, this talking horse effect. And so he made up a different way. <laughs> he was like, they put peanut butter on the horse's teeth and it flaps its lips to get the peanut butter off. And like, this was just reported as fact. All right. The, the hoax that is way too effective, I guess. Right. Um, and also this didn't like save anybody from ruining the mystery. It was just like, now they believed a false thing <laughs> in addition to believing it wasn't magic. <laughs> That's true. Well, I guess he pranked all those people that uh, tried to, you know, apply peanut butter to their horse's mouth and re- recreate the uh, the effect. Right. Uh, you guys ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Shannon, your topic is um, regarding media consumption. Do you agree that there are no guilty pleasures? I wrote this one because this is sort of like a something I kind of came to as I got more into media and something that I've soapboxed on a lot because I... To me, the the concept of a guilty pleasure is someone who is elitist making you feel bad about something that you like. Like, there's one thing to like... It's different to like something and know that there are aspects of it that aren't as well made or that are problematic or whatever, and still find value in it. I think that's totally valid to be critical of things you like. But to feel like something that you like is makes you feel bad or less than or guilty or like it's... I don't know. I, I really don't like that. I think it's better to be sincere in what you like. Or, or if there's something that you like that's garbage, you still like it versus being like, oh, I feel kind of bad. This is kind of embarrassing. I don't have very good taste. Like, I think taste is made up. <laughs> so that's my whole that's that's my take on it. And, and, and other takes are, are valid, you know, but it's something that I reached a certain point where people will kind of like rib you or make fun of you for stuff that you like. And I just quit even responding to that or acknowledging it. It's like, yeah, I like it. I don't care if you like, let's talk about it. Yeah. But you're not going to make me feel bad for liking something, you know. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm I I agree. I think when people say it's something as a guilty pleasure, they're what they mean is this is something that they would be they don't want to tell certain people in their lives that they enjoy. Yeah. I don't know. I I tend to see it more as like there are certain certain places you can get to that are really easy to get to and certain places that are harder and you can have uh artworks that are just kind of like the really low low hanging fruit. Maybe even executed a little sloppily, but I mean, because it's the easy stuff, it still works and you enjoy it. I think of that as more like basic bitch pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I, I think that that stuff is certainly there. And but I also don't like think it's you should feel bad about enjoying it. And I also think it's perfectly fine to like feel like this isn't sophisticated enough for you. I think both are like pretty reasonable takes on it. Mm-hmm. 
What about stuff like um, black exploitation, where it's just kind of um, exploitative? Yeah. Do you mean like in the like the problematic sense? Uh, I guess in the sense where it's like I don't know they they, they were pandering to an audience and uh, didn't have very high expectations of them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of black exploitation stuff is amazing, though. Oh yeah. I mean, it's they definitely Rudy, like it's still. I I saw Rudy Ray Moore film in a theater. And that was awesome. Like, I, there is nothing but since, I mean, there are parts of it that are like obviously problem, like problematic or that people working on it might have been exploited. But the people who made a lot of those films put a lot of love into it and they're entertaining. Yeah, I guess I don't know what, what in the, in the, the portmanteau, ex, what is exploitation referring to? Like, is it just referring to like, there's just not that much media for black people. And so here is some. Well, it's like, like exploitation films, it would be like sort of like sexualized, gory, kind of schlocky stuff. And it was like the black version of that. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Is my understanding of it. And it's yeah, also yeah. like my favorite comedy film is Black Dynamite, which is sort mm-hmm. of like a postmodern examination of black exploitation films that makes fun of them. But it obviously is made with so much love for those movies, you know. And it's also very funny. I got on this kind of like soapbox because I don't really listen to them or like them anymore. But in my early 20s, I got really into Fall Out Boy. Right. Which legitimately some of the music they had was really good. And they uh, went on hiatus for years because their fans, they did a more experimental kind of cool album and their fans turned on them. One of them lost a bunch of weight and people threw stuff at him and said, we'd like you better fat. And they got so much <laughs> abuse. And there were people, not only from their own fans, but people they reached out to work with made fun of them and rejecting them. And it's like, it's okay if you don't like them. They never did anything offensive or hurtful. Yeah. Yeah. They were never like bad people to where they deserve that much venom. They just became a popular thing to dislike. And people hated them and they became a target and, and becoming a fan of theirs. It's like, why do people hate them so much? Why would someone be embarrassed to work with these people when they never said anything like shitty about anybody? And and that became, again, like their later albums are just terrible and I don't really listen to their music anymore. But it was like, wow, people really hate them for no reason. <laughs> and I'm not going to be embarrassed because I like a band that has never done anything offensive or hurtful to anybody. It was like, that was my kind of awakening moment. That became my like armor where it's like, I don't care if you are judging me for liking a band, like get something else to do with your time. (laughs) It's kind of how I took it. Yeah, I I do think there's a a a factor where like if you grow up liking a thing that is not cool to like as an older teenager, then Mm -hmm. you you do a lot of the time try to distance yourself from it. It it feels embarrassing. The ironic thing is that I feel the the music that I like that I feel shame about is all prog rock, which is like <laughs> notoriously snobby, which is like the whole other side of it, where they had these all, all these terrible fans that were shaming people for what you might call a guilty pleasure, and now mm-hmm. in turn they are they have a terrible reputation and uh, as being snobs. Yeah, it comes full circle. It's like uh, it's like Rick and Morty. Mm-hmm. Where- I was thinking of Rick and Morty. Oh God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, which I love, like, I think it's a great show, but also like it definitely attracts really terrible people to it. There's also Dan Harmon is a very complicated figure who tried to ruin a woman's career because she wouldn't have sex with him. The whole Megan Gantz thing. Yeah. I would have still watched Rick and Morty, even though their fan base is so embarrassing because I enjoyed the show. I think that kind of took the joy out of it for me on top of the because I try not to let fan bases influence 
what what I do or do not enjoy, but I think his his behavior, yeah. Maybe we should reclaim guilty pleasure to this is something you enjoy even though the creator is abusive. <laughs> the mm. the not separate art from an artist. It's funny because I feel like society would shame me so much more for liking Fallout Boy than liking a Polanski film or something, right? <laughs> Whereas the Fallout Boy guys, as far as I know, have never done anything to hurt any. Like they're kind of they've done silly stuff or embarrassing stuff. They've never had any like sex pest stuff versus like what Polanski did, which I'm not even going to go into. Where it's like, oh, that's art. It's fine. It's like the the social weight of how these things are are measured is so weird. Yeah. Uh, so the other way we can fix this is by turning fallout boy into sex pests <laughs> <laughs> if it hasn't happened by now of them like having screaming teenage girl fans for years i've never again i'm not an expert i haven't kept this was like like if you have any inclination i guess that's what would bring it out huh yeah and i've never it was very like a uh, pete Wentz. his nudes were leaked at some point and I felt so bad for him when I got, this is like, I got into them years after this happened. It's like, even just Googling him, I saw the pictures without trying to, you know, cause it's, it became like a meme. And I just felt so bad that this, this like intimate thing of his, like this very private photo, uh, is just so ingrained into the internet now that I kept seeing it just like looking at their tags on Tumblr or whatever. I was like, good Lord, this is <laughs> awful. Yeah. You guys want to do another topic? Yeah. My topic is, did you know that daytime soaps air a new episode every weekday? How is this possible? I found this out yesterday. I was listening to a podcast that mentioned uh, Passions, which is, I believe, debuted in 1999 and was an obsession of the character Spike on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, (laughs) And it just came up that... This is, there were like 250 episodes, hour long episodes in the first season because the production schedule of this sort of show is they just, they push out an episode every weekday. Yeah. I just don't understand how it's, how it's possible. I mean, they're, they're working with the same cast over and over and over. I, I guess I could sort of understand how you could maybe write for something like that because you can have a writer's room, but just the fatigue on the actors must be incredible. Yeah, I would imagine that they, the casts are pretty big and they will rotate out. Like, mm-hmm. now the stories the stories are focusing on one character this week or whatever, or one set of characters. Well, that would make sense. But um, for my part, I'm from the British Commonwealth, so I'm thinking of Coronation Street, which is this um, incredibly dour soap opera set in a Yorkshire pub, which has had... It's just been the same dozen actors with a few people coming on board, a few people leaving for, I don't know, 50 years now. That's amazing. It must have taken over their lives entirely. Most actors I know would be happy to just have steady work. (laughs) I mean, that's fair. Yeah. I I had read um, in, in reading about this that sometimes they will try to shoot six episodes in a five day schedule so they can get a day off. Wow. Like they just try to compress it more. I mean, so I imagine a lot of like what they do to maintain the schedule is just not be very careful, you know, Mm -hmm. like just let if an error happens, just let it happen. And I'm guessing that like they maybe will skip the editing process and like the, 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 the the detailed editing process and just like do a multi-camera shoot with live camera switching, like a, like a, like a live broadcast. (laughs) And camera editing 
on a soap opera, kind of. Right. Maybe I mean, the editing has to be easy as like an editor, as my like primary job. Like you kind of get into the the feel of the show, and you could probably do it in your sleep. Yeah, yeah, the, you think the, so? The language, the language of it, you know, probably. I mean, I think switching to HD was probably a really big change. Was a big change for soap operas, from what I've read about it. But right. You kind of like, okay, this is what a dramatic reveal looks like. This is what a conversation looks like. This is what this type of scene looks like. And you have that language versus a show that's more like experimental or deliberate in what they do. Not to trash soap operas or anything. Just like if, if something is on that tight of a production schedule, there would not be time to do any kind of crazy cinematography. And then I feel like the edit would be a lot easier. Th- this kind of reminds me of the documentary Six Days to Air, which is about South Park. Hmm. I'm not really a fan of South Park, but it, it was very interesting to watch it about how they would be very topical because they were on such a tight turnaround. Mm-hmm. Right. And how it was stressful, but it allowed them to get jokes in in a way that you like would be really hard on a more traditionally animated show. Yeah. And that that's sort of like that show has been going on for decades. Um, yeah. And I have to wonder how much longer, like as those guys age, how much longer they're going to be willing to put up with that schedule I don't know. I, I didn't even realize it was still on, That it doesn't surprise me. I, I guess I don't know for sure uh, that it is. I haven't heard about it. Every so often I'll see on Twitter some like embarrassing Simpsons clip that's just awful, but people don't even talk about... So I guess South Park can't be that bad or people would be trying to dunk on it on Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> like I imagine that like, well, Simpsons uh, goes, uh, has had a number of different writers over the years and I'm sure it's an entirely different set of writers from the early seasons Oh, absolutely. I think I think Al Jean's still on board, and like, yeah. Uh, apart from that, it's an oh, entirely well, okay. different different uh, writers' room. But yeah. South Park is just those two dudes, basically. Yeah, there's kind of no one to blame with uh, the decline decline of South Park. I, I feel like with the big hate hate boner for The Simpsons, I mean, you can you can point fingers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The thing that I might blame for. South Park's decline is that it was a like the the ethos of the show the writing was kind of fossilized in the 90s. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even if those people even if well, I forget their names, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Yeah. Even if they have themselves moved on, if they're still writing that show, they have to write the show otherwise they're not really making the product that they they're that they set out to make. Yeah, it's it's not especially nowadays. It's not uh it's not appetizing. It's no. still like I think it's still funny. I think they still make good jokes, but like philo- philosophically, I think it's kind of gross that everybody is stupid, like both sides are stupid approach to mm-hmm. to storytelling, to politics. It's lazy. Like even if I didn't if I wasn't like a really like if I wasn't a leftist, I still think that's just sort of the easy middle of the road way to look at it and it's also it's just like nihilistic and self-important to be yeah. like everyone but me is too sincere and too into their views and they're all stupid and this is why everyone is stupid regardless of like their position in life or anything right. i think th- there, there's stuff that you can accurately critique or make fun of in a lot of different groups but it, it the way that they do it is just kind of hateful because i haven't seen all of book of mormon but i liked what i saw of it i never got that vibe from that but they are taking on something very specific with that. I also haven't seen it, but it seems like a much more compassionate kind of project. Yes. And funnier than any <laughs> like current, like like from that era on South Park. Yeah. 
I'm just trying to think if there's uh, something that's comparably that's got a comparable volume of of the production. I mean, if like a news broadcast, like there there. Oh yeah, news and sports, be... I suppose, but but scripted. Scripted, not entirely scripted, but also like talk shows, like the the Daily Show or yeah, whatever. The the, the Tonight Show is going to have a new episode every weeknight for the most part, and. But but like only very small parts of that are scripted. Most of it's an interview show. Doesn't pro wrestling have a pretty crazy schedule? It's like multiple times a week. Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I was thinking of like weekly manga. Ah. One Piece is at almost a thousand chapters. It's been going since 1997 with one guy writing it and doing the art with his assistant. He takes weeks off though. And it's it's him and his assistants. But like the idea of working on the same thing since 1997 yeah uh and it just consuming your life i'm kind of impressed that that um like jim davis is still still in the garfield mines that's got to be that's some commitment <laughs> yeah and he he could uh he could definitely leave and, Gar- and garfield's legacy of, of shit posts would <laughs> be maintained by all his fans yeah that's some real commitment uh, that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Craig, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the, inter- on the internet? You can find me at mostlytigerproof.com. Um, and if you'd like to check out the pinball game I'm working on, it's at pinballheresies.com. And you can sign up to a mailing list and I'll send you playtesting builds whenever. Great. Uh, Shannon, if this, is something pe- if this is something you want, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Plenty of Alcoves. Uh, you can find Struggle Session at Struggle Sesh and Critical Bits at Critical Bitcast. And if you go on YouTube and if you type in like uh, Scanline H Bomber Guy or if you type in Fake Friends Parasocial, you can find my stuff. Cool. Thanks so much for being on. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. All right. Unless you guys have a good tagline to say right now, I'm going <laughs> to end the show. All right. Quick, quick. Come up with something good. Is this something I can say and talk person? I wonder. Is that, can you say like goodbye or something like that? Or see you in hell? Can you say thanks for the memories in Talk Pissin'? That's a fallout boy song. <laughs> Dang. Uh, I'm not even <laughs> sure it has a word for memory. I can look up goodbye. Uh, it'll have that. Right. I hope goodbye is a, a fossilized translation of see you in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Lucum ye buhin. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.